Hi, Mage fans. This is your host, Terry Robinson, with Mage the Podcast. Adam's microphone failed while recording this episode, and while we have since gotten a replacement, we had to use the backup, which was from a webcam. Thanks to our executive producers for giving us the coin that allowed us to do this without batting an eyelash, but because of this, the audio today is a bit garbled. We also lost a short section where Adam and I talk about how we should move away from the term totem, but that we'll be using that term in the episode for clarity. On with the show. Welcome to Mage the Podcast, the podcast that works hard towards ascension so you don't have to. I'm your host, Adam Simpson, and I'm joined by co-host Terry Robinson. What is the difference between a trusted ally, a talking cat, and a strange being from the spirit realms? Well, apparently not much because they're all covered in the same book. Yes, today, folks, we are talking about gods and monsters on Tomes of Magic. And before we do that, Terry, are there any announcements? Yeah, I got one announcement. You and I gave each other a high five in person. That was very cool. We met on two different days in Austin. It was uh, very nice to be able to host Terry in my own town. I, I wanted to take him down to the Botanical Garden, but uh, there was a kite festival of all things. So that was completely shut down. The most technocratic of all hobbies, kiting. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I was in Austin to participate in Matthew Webb's Mage Noir LARP, which was fascinating. It was one of those things where I had all my stuff decked out. I had my costume. I had some makeup set up and I get there. We're all getting set up and everything. And another guy there has the exact same brown suit as me. I just like, I look at him and go, "Is does your tailor go by the name of eBay? He's like, why? Yes, it does. And we, uh, we joked the entire evening about having like a diegetic reason why we had the same suit, but we never quite came up with one my other favorite line for the evening was like oh wow you you took that punch very well it, it you said this was your first time larping oh yeah you took like that like someone who's been punched a lot i was really convinced so that was flattering uh so <laughs> but uh, yeah, thanks i think <laughs> yeah so thank you to uh, matt and i believe rachel for putting that on that was lovely thank you to the other people who were like to LARP and they're like oh we'll tell you how to LARP your name is Peaches that was that was lovely and I hope I get a chance to do that or something similar again I say that somewhat um falsely because Josh Heath and I are going to a LARP in Europe in 2023 because I'm bad at self-control so we'll see how that goes but it's a vampire LARP and our original plan was to be the first two blood brothers and I would put him on my shoulder and we would assume our war form and just go around beating people up but he said that was not period appropriate because the blood blood brothers hadn't been invented yet during the dark ages and I'm like fine Mr. Heath but yeah we'll see how that goes so I have like roughly a year to come up with a uh, a costume and so on but that's it for me how about you smalls I, that should be plenty of time to come up with a costume you'll have Hopefully. to tell us how that goes larping is one of those things that it fascinates me it looks like a lot of fun but i don't think i'm quite cut out for it so i'm, <laughs> I'm content to hear about it at this point i'm, I'm glad a lot of people are enjoying that uh, pushing aside larping and getting back to tabletop i was going to tell everyone a bit about gods and monsters which uh, came out in 2019 Clocks in at uh, 221 pages, 11 different authors. Before this point in our Mage 20 books, it was uh, primarily on the shoulders of one author who had a lot of work to do to bring these books to us, but now he's getting a lot of help with uh, 11 different people contributing. And one of them is Satiris Bricado, who's still quite involved uh, at this point in the series. 
we should have a, a book with a, a different tone and a lot of interesting material. Terry, do you think a, a walkthrough is appropriate for this book? I will try. Yeah, this book consists of some key chapters explaining some core concepts, some fiction interspersed, and then several chapters that are long lists of things. I do not say that dismissively because sometimes a chapter just needs to be a long list of a thing. And we will start on that, the opening fiction for this is called Burning Bones, and it continues the M20 habit of not putting the word prelude at the top, which still my revised heart finds slightly fear-inducing. We hear the story of Leanne Milner, who we have been following at this point, learning the story of Big Owl, kind of this embodiment of the nature of fear and how it can be defeated or driven away and how it goes up against killer of enemies and how Big Owl is shattered and the shards of Big Owl go about the world. She is in conversation with another character, and that is the prelude. The introduction is entitled Something Rich and Strange, and whenever I see rich in a mage title or a chapter title, I assume they're talking about Rich Thomas, and they never are. Maybe when we get to Rich Bastard's Guide to Magic, we'll find out. The first section is entitled Gods in a Monstrous World. The fiction before that is a conversation between John Courage and what appears to be an uplifted dog of some sort that we find out is named Agent Tiberius who is also talking with someone by the name of Agent Simpson, and they're planning something. Mention is made at that there is a corruption at the heart of the Union, which we do not get information that this is specifically nephondic, and in general, I choose to interpret corruption as a lowercase c kind of thing, where the mission has been corrupted. It's not like uh, just fallen to the... Uh, agents of the star squid. The book indicates its purpose is to be able to reflect on what it is to be a mage by showing what other beings are out there and how they interact with mages, whether they be animals, constructs, vampires, beasts, or other things. We also find out that the original title was Gods and Monsters and Familiar Stranger Strangers, in which the title Gods and Monsters came from the film Bride of Frankenstein. We get an aside on troop play, which uh, I, I am informally considering the most common form of alternative play no one has ever done and it talks about how no one should ever have to play two characters at once because of all the problems it creates and to just kind of not do that and i'm like yep don't be a storyteller then <laughs> it then walks through what the chapters are going to be and that leads us into chapter one adam do you have any thoughts on the introduction I really liked them suggesting troop-style play again. I, I really enjoy that. And uh, I have to say, the games that I run in the past, I did not employ that technique, but I, I seriously want to. I read about it, uh, how it kind of started in um, Ars Magica. And uh, I, I think that would be a really great way to employ the material in Chapter 5 of this book. I, I think it would be a lot of fun to give everybody one uh, lower-level acolyte one strong consort and one mage and say, look, uh, at the beginning of each session, you can just pick one of these that you want to play. I think that would be a lot of fun, especially since you're only doing one uh, character at a time. I remember some games where because of what was going on, they handed me an extra character sheet and said, you run two characters at the same time. And it, it was not a, a nice experience for me. So one at a time, I think it's great. Chapter one is entitled Sleepers, Consors, Hunters, and Night Folk. And this chapter contains information about sleepers, consors, hunters, and night folk. We get some opening information about what the masses are and how people break down by age. 
it states that humans are the consensus and mages are just kind of along for the ride. It works very hard in this section to take the nameless people that can be in a story and to give them names and to give them a sense of where they've been and where they're going. It makes mention that it is possible for mortals to have merits and flaws. Uh, some of them may be odd. For instance, it mentions a mortal may be a psychic vampire or have one or two dots of true faith or have cloak of the seasons. And I get the sense that this is there just to prevent mages from treating mortals as just unimportant characters. It then starts walking through different characters by age. And the general template we will get in this book is general description of category, stat block, specific example. It starts off with children, and uh, in this case, young child. And it notes that young children may have up to three dots of awareness and two dots of enigma, which means that children can sense resonance. It shows kind of how ability and dot set out can rise and fall across ages. These are characters that you can just pick up and drop into a game if you want to. We then get people at various, for lack of a better term, levels of society. We get hard cases, people who have been beaten up by the world and come through it. Better bouncers, rough folk, uh, homeless survivors, a collection of people that are out there that are have their wits about them, power players, subculture devotees. Character descriptions on the whole are fine. They give us a cross-section of society. The descriptions are quite lengthy. This plus the section in M20 Core, where it just kind of gives some basic stat blocks, I think are, are quite useful in cases where you just need a stat block. Cultural savvy is listed as a ability in a number of places. Was that one of the secondary abilities that we got in Book of Secrets? Because I don't remember having seen that before. I don't remember seeing it. The next section is entitled Acolytes, Consors, and Extraordinary Citizens. And the, the key thing it wants to have here is it primes you with a bunch of questions regarding when you are creating a mortal that hangs around with mages, they need motives. And they break it down into roughly 10 different types. It also gives a brief aside on saying, hey, this is what the difference between a consor is. This is what a, a custos was. We sadly do not get the phrase a turb of grogs. And it starts out with assistance. These just assist mages in mundane work. This may be uh, scientific aid, religious supporters, or community aids tend to have views similar to the mage. Hermetics and scientists tend to be hard on hired help and generally suggest that mages look down on this kind of assistance. There are backup, which are skilled in a particular way that is useful. Uh, groups often have a leader that has final say. One of the types of backup at lists is a group of skilled accountants. I want that game where there is a game defining moment where someone has five dots of backup and it is a legion of accountants. But I'm like, oh man, this is amazing. They indicate that backup do not view themselves as cannon fodder, which is funny because in the M20 core listing for backup, it's like these people are essentially cannon fodder. So there's a couple places where what is described here is a little bit in conflict. And that strikes me as one of those things where um, most of the time they are just a stat, but periodically the storyteller can say, hey, 
uh, we're going to make this part forward. We're going to make this important. We're going to introduce this kind of complication, maybe a justification of a failed or a botched dice roll or something like that. So there is a little bit of a tension between the mechanical representation and how these characters generally view themselves in the game. Uh, cleaners, which is one of the more interesting groups to me, is come and clean up after a bad situation. And the example they always use for this kind of role is the wolf from Pulp Fiction, a character that is contacted when things go sideways. Uh, they give the example of after a shooting, you've got three people that are mopping up the blood two people who are doing body disposal, another person who's patching up holes in the wall, and then someone else who's running interference to do a fade out for the media. It indicates that they tend to have a willpower of no less than seven, that they are unfazed by anything, and they may have flaws like icy or PTSD. They tend to be hard as nails. I like the idea of them being kind of contacts, and it shows the odd parts of the world of darkness. We get cultists, which are characters that revere the mage and can sway reality in their presence in sufficient quantity. We have handlers, who are the people who interface with the outside world for the mage. They tend to have autonomy, and they are skilled enough to give the mage a hard time. They tend to have an attitude, and they may not necessarily know who they are working for in terms of what they're actually doing. We get the class of characters known as Igors, who are kind of human guinea pigs. And this is one of a few where uh, there is a severe power imbalance and can get into some messy territory, where historically this is something that mages did be out of social standing, where they were just considered to be the social superiors of someone else. So they're like, yep, I'm going to experiment on you. They tend to have a pretty great physical flaw. And this section is on the whole pretty dark. We get a lover section that covers uh, family, uh, lovers, someone trying to win the mage over. They tend to be fanatical that this may go Path's death. We also get a quadruple, which I think is the first documented forpal in Mage. We have the professionals who are doing it to get a paycheck. These are the corona of people from attendance to something stranger that want money or resources from the Mage. They tend not to take on extra duties and their pay needs to be commensurate with the hazard time and skill that they're undertaking, and they tend to be morally flexible. The next section is servants. They tend to live with the mage, and this could be out of desperation, social status, obligation, or debt. We get slaves, and it's like, yep, some mages are terrible. I liked this breakout. Some of them had a fair bit of overlap. I I think for a lot of these, my preferred way of listing it would have been a short description plus four or five, two or three sentence examples of a character, or maybe tying it to a particular worldview. I feel having gone through the book, there are certain traditions that aren't very well covered in terms of non-mages that a character could encounter. We got a few, for instance, from the technocracy. I don't remember any that tied specifically really to uh, members of the Disparate Alliance, for instance, and a few of the traditions didn't really seem like they were talked about. But on the whole, I thought it was a useful reminder of some of the different types. The next part of this section is entitled Hunters and Static Adepts. They are threats that are not quite magical. They are enhanced humans, hedge magicians, and other creatures. It makes mention to the second edition of World of Darkness Sorcerer. There is no second edition of World World of Darkness Sorcerer. We just have uh, Mage Sorcerer revised. We get no systems for hedge magics except to say that they have rituals of some sort and that they can build up effects to emulate a single sphere. Again, Marcus's write-up knocks against insurance agencies, indicating that the weird thing that happened to him was an act of God. In general, we get insurance specifically to insure us against act of God. We get a section on Nightfolk, 
And these are kind of listings that allow you to emulate a particular kind of night folk without necessarily go grabbing the uh, Vampire 20 or Werewolf 20 core rulebook. And I thought in general these were, were kind of interesting. We get a slimmed down system for rage that says, for instance, hey, once a turn, a werewolf has the ability to spend one of these rage points to get an extra action, recover a point of health, have an extra few dice in a physical pool. And these seem perfectly fine. We get a liberated ghoul that hunts vampires. We get a basic vampire write-up, which I think is uh, perfectly serviceable with some example abilities. They, they talk about how older vampires tend to work through proxies. Mages are terrified of vampires and they need to make a willpower roll to resist against them, which I thought was interesting because no mention was made for that on the werewolf side when we have the phenomenon of delirium. We get a sample werewolf that hunts wizards after one turned him into silver. A lot of the bad mages represented in this book that did things that hurt people that turned them against mages kind of seem like badass mages where it's like he blew up two of them and turned a third to silver. I'm like, man, that would take a lot of successes based on what I recall from how do you do that? Good good on him. I would have liked a few more powers just kind of as a bulleted list. It doesn't need to perfectly approximate everything, but when you indicate things are just like sphere approximations, I would like a little more detail to run with it. We get a few other character types, which are characters that are kind of weird things adjacent, whether it be a, a character that's had some sort of contact with a ghost or some frontline contact with the technology but otherwise it's a it's a list of characters that cover cover i feel a lot of common uh, tropes and encounter types that would occur in mage adam what'd you think of chapter one i got no utility out of the examples of, of sleepers of different age groups and then examples of, of each one it's like the core book gives me what i need to portray these people uh, it seems like the, these long detailed examples of a person from each age group i think the author was trying to express to mage fans uh, uh, don't treat uh, the sleeper npcs as you know just minor characters that are in the way and you push them out of the way and you laugh about it you should you know treat them as like real involved people but we already know that and in, in any game that we run there are an awful lot of npcs and yes a lot of them are just going to be walk-ons and then they walk off and we're not getting in depth into their background their personality but uh, for those that are important to the story we're telling, yeah, we're going to, to zero in on them and make them real living, breathing characters. So I kind of like the uh, Roberto Castrovinci, um, older vampire. Uh, I thought that was kind of a neat idea. For a lot of people who are new to World of Darkness, they sort of get the idea that uh, vampires are these uh, scary guys you meet in back alleys or nightclubs, and then you you know have a fight or you escape from them or something. And it's like, no, you can have an older established vampire that's hiding in the background and sending proxies against you and can have you know this sort of background, which would give them these sorts of um, objectives. And so I, I like seeing that example. I, I think that can help people to work with vampires in a different way in their games uh, who are new to World of Dark. I was reading through this uh, sample werewolf character who's an adversary against mages. He's called Hunts the Wizards. It, it, that name didn't actually sound silly to me. That sounded like a name that, that werewolves might actually use from, from my understanding of reading the first two editions of the werewolf game. But reading through this example, I was starting to think, okay, with the rules changes for Mage 20, I actually need an explanation for why the werewolves haven't killed all the mages now. <laughs> In the previous three editions, I sort of understood. It's like you know, the mages have these, these things on their side and they have these abilities and everything. But, but with the rules changes for Mage 20, it's like it, it would actually help me just say this is why they're still mages alive uh, after all the werewolves went after them. It's because, um, yeah, this, this uh, 
sample of uh, werewolf going after mages is, is pretty darn dangerous. And from my memory of reading through the um, rules examples of this is why you shouldn't mess with vamp with, with uh, were creatures. It's like, yeah, it sounds like all mages should hide very hard from were creatures. Otherwise, they might all be dead. Also, there was a sample Bastet uh, cat character, which I, again, I always like pulling in the Bastet because I think of all the were creatures, the Bastet are the most interesting and the most likely to find common cause with mages. But boy, howdy, this this write-up, this sample character was was so long. She has all these different personalities she pretends to be, and it goes into detail for every single personality. It's like you know, as I'm flipping the pages, it's like, okay, I think I get it. I, th I think we can end this this write up now. This is whoever wrote this really, really liked this sample Bastet character. My gosh. Chapter two is entitled Constructs and Familiars and covers constructs and familiars. And it just kind of gets into it. Constructs are beings that are in some way created. And later on, we get the idea that this can be biological, mechanical, or other, which I don't know, to me, kind of covers everything. Uh, the, the chapter introduction art introduces us to a character by the name of Darius, who is apparently uh, quite easy on the eyes and generally does not wear clothing and is kind of a hologram slash intimate companion device. He says to maintain uh, this episode, not getting the explicit tag. I find it an interesting comment. that's like, this woman has a naked sex doll walking around her laboratory. Eh. And then it's it, it later on. It has, this is a female anime robot girl. Weirdo. Me thinks the lady doth protest too much. We get the write up for uh, Masako one who is some sort of ninja anime character who is also fashionably dressed. That is the working project of an etherite. We get an Atlas unit, which we last saw, I believe in NWO revised, which is when you take a, uh, a cybernetic weapons platform and take an abducted mage that you've brainwashed the dink out of and shove them into it. And you just kind of set them out in the world and see if they can make it by themselves. And the answer is yes, albeit briefly. As a note, they have an armor rating of 10. So good luck with that. Plus an additional 10 soak dice. These things are absolute hammers that may just break periodically. We get an update on the Hitmark series in second edition and revised we'd kind of gone up to the Hitmark series 5, which was the Terminator-esque Gatling gun person, what was it? The X-44 was the signature character. X-344 was the signature character for that. We had heard rumors of the Hitmark Series 6, which was kind of this liquid metal character entitled the Mercury. And then we get the Hitmark 7 here, which is entitled the Mask, which is designed for infiltration missions. And they call it the Mask because its face periodically freezes and it's obvious that it's wearing a mask. So they don't really use them that much anymore. So that didn't work out well. So we advanced to the Hitmark 8 and that didn't work out really well. In fact, it worked out so not well that we don't even get a write-up for them. And they're like, it's a heavy weapons platform. And who knew? After trying to create subtle robots that broke all the time, we tried to create an unsubtle robot, and that broke even more. Who could have predicted that besides everyone? Then we get the Mark 7 named Iron Bob, which is a kind of a paradox magnet, but the important part is it's a paradox magnet we got rules for. And again, I'm glad these existed. Sometimes you play a subtle game, sometimes you do not play a subtle game. We get a character type uh, reintroduced called the modes, which are uh, media operatives, diversionary enterprise specialists who are manufactured celebrities. These I love. These are characters that have been made by the syndicate or the NWO 
with assistance of the progenitors and so on and probably use iterator x sleep teaching and the void engineers are just cheering on in the background that way it's a true team effort and these are just manufactured talking heads that are remarkably charismatic and they are the mouthpieces for technocratic propaganda and because this is made the ascension the next section is on reanimated corpses we get a eye that just flies around and has a claw we get a creeper which is just made of random body parts we get some very i'm gonna say evocative art like this is some uh what if hieronymus bosch decided to start a swedish death metal band art on page 86 we were like ah it's a butt but the butt is holding a chainsaw at least that's how i read that art so if that doesn't get you to buy this book i don't know what that will we get an update on frankensteinian monstrosities and it says can these awaken and they're like Eh? we get the handy hand we get we get an it that can kind of float around has strength three and it's like does it need to eat nope but it's a pretty cool hand we get a talking head which is a literal talking head and then we get soul flowers these are characters that are walking quintessence repositories and the thing that threw me off about this is i did some quick read through we don't really get information on how they charge which kind of threw me off i'm like oh wait they don't just naturally generate their own quintessence they're just kind of a quintessence battery in the form of a person it also indicates that eva sharone one of the characters listed can also deal with market corrections which is to say paradox and i don't recall them specifically mentioning that being something that soul flowers can do so i don't know if that's an addition or just the fact that they are a wonder and wonders have the ability to do paradox nullification if you pay for it i thought that was kind of an interesting angle we also get one of the greatest light off write-ups which is lord floof which is a cat that just radiates calmness and quintessence we then get a sudden jump to other character types we get talos the giant bronze statue filled with the blood of the gods of greek legend we get thorn gorgers who are this weird interdimensional vine thing that can cause certain problems we get tiny warriors that appear to be statue sized and they don't really make mention of them being able to it's kind of implied that they can change size i prefer to think that they can only say statue sized and they still have a strength of five and dexterity of six so they can go all day on very tiny legs we then get information on zombies of various stripes do you want a voodoo zombie do you want a fast zombie well we got well we got both they say that zombies cannot be destroyed but we don't really get a regeneration system the cannibal corpses are listed as having been created during the week of nightmares which suggests that as of now that they've survived for over 20 years which seems unreasonable because they're driven by demons with infernal hunger and they really have no intelligence to protect them from the outside world so either the world of darkness has been dealing with a plague of cannibal corpses for the last score years or i miss something both are possible and that brings us on to the familiar section the adamentary m20 drinking game it opens with a section that makes a dig about revised for no particular reason it specifically says in previous mage source books though familiars were presented with two different sets of rules the book of shadows ascension's right hand the bygone bestiary and various other books regarded familiars as mortal beasts with mystical powers wherein forged by Dragonfire presents a new set of rules that treat familiar with rules given for spirits not for material creatures those rules define familiars as spirits who occasionally manifest Manifested on the human side of the gauntlet, yet continue to use the rules given for ephemera. From Forged by Dragon's Fire, unlike an ally or a contact, a familiar is almost constantly with its mage. So, 
Nope. They also said in this book that, hey, in a previous book, you spirit rules and you shouldn't. And then through the rest of the book, it gives familiars rage, nuisance, and essence, which are the three stats we give to spirits. Additionally, in Ascension's right hand, it specifically lists familiars as a type of spirit that has temporarily been given bodily form. So no, that's not the case sidebar on page 97. After that, we get probably one of the most, I don't know about you, Adam, but when I think about familiars, I think of Ducky and Underground event, the Uncle Worldwind, a giant flaming flying skull. We get information on Lullaby, which is a character that is a spider that helps a character by the name of Spider. And we get Agent Tiberius, which is an uplifted dog, which will mess you up and is a technocratic agent of some capability, but has no dexterous limbs, but also has telekinesis, which at that point, I'm going to call that a dexterous, dexterous limb. So we get a bunch of interesting listings of familiars. This section is relatively short because later we get much more involved rules write-ups on that. It does a weird thing where in some cases it will list what a flaw is in the description, but the merits are listed separately. I kind of would have wanted all of those together, but we get a couple samples and then it moves on. Chapter two is another hardy chapter. And what did you think about it, Adam? Towards the beginning, I really liked the artificial people section. I, I, I think they were trying to focus on constructs, um, artificial people that can be helpful in the technocracy to uh, technocracy sorts of characters. But uh, I, I just really enjoyed the section. I thought there were a lot of good entries there. That's where you have uh, Masako, the anime girl, which I admit was a bit silly, but I think it still gives some helpful stats. Even the write-up before they got into particular uh, artificial uh, people examples uh, I thought was helpful to storytellers. So uh, I, I was very pleased with that. We got a few extra hit marks, which I actually enjoy. Uh, I, they try to make it look like hit marks are somehow ridiculous and shouldn't use them in your game, but I do it anyways. I just don't care. I was blown away by full write-ups with stats for severed hands and heads. It's like they're, they're just severed hands and heads. I mean, if, if a storyteller can't mock up some stats for that in, in less than five minutes, then that, that's pretty surprising to me. The uh, Talos Automaton from ancient Greece that has been rediscovered by, I believe it was the Society of Ether, and uh, also the uh, Iteration X has learned about it, and they're very curious about acquiring it. I thought that was really cool. I, I like the write-up. I, I like the possibilities there. Just, there's some history on it that's interesting history that, that I might actually want to use as a storyteller. And then there's two plot hooks for it with the Society of Ether and also with Iteration X. And it's like, yeah, I, I could use either one of these and, and make it cool in my game. So right after that, we get to the Thorn Gorgers, which is some sort of strange, mysterious, supernatural plant. I can see how a lot of people would view this as silly, but I, I actually liked it. I thought it was pretty darn cool. You could call it a trope in a lot of science fiction sort of stories. There's like some alien plant where if you touch it, then these long vines start whipping around and, and entangling people and lifting them up and stuff like that. It, we, we see it a lot in fantasy sci-fi stories. And this is uh, an example of that for Mage. And also it grows these strange multicolored berries that people like to eat. And so for this reason, there are some isolated places on Earth and perhaps even Horizon Realms where people are actually cultivating it as a, a food plant. And that's uh, so... You know, pernicious because that's how it uh, gets a toehold and uh, gets people to, to help it to grow in different places. And it can spread from Earth into the penumbra and from there into horizon realms and, and umbral realms, which we get to Uncle Whirlwind at the end. And, uh, you know, you think you know a person. <laughs> I never knew that there was a flaming skull-shaped hole in Terry's heart, but now I know. All jokes aside, I have trouble seeing this as a familiar 
it's sort of a patron spirit of a, a group of mages where if you make it happy, it'll show up and do something for you. But if you piss it off, it'll say, screw you and disappear. That's not a familiar. I mean, to me, um, an intrinsic definition of what a familiar is, is a familiar that is always around a mage. And there's this understanding that we might not get along, but we're in this together. And when one of us is in trouble, the other is going to do something because we are really stuck to each other. And if one of us gets hurt, the other does too. So this familiar that it's like, yeah, make me happy or I'll disappear. It's like, that that's not a familiar. Patron spirit, okay. And it can be interesting in games, but don't call it a familiar. Chapter three, animals. We get attributes for a number of animals. Uh, one of the things that kind of threw me off throughout the book is they will frequently give armor dice versus soak dice. And in some cases it is ambiguous as to whether or not the creature can soak lethal or aggravated armor. In this case, I presume means that it can soak lethal and other dice means that it can soak bashing. Uh, I would have just kept those two separate. We then get bygone monsters. This is a list of legendary creatures that are kind of living in the shadows. But the problem with this is they're not always living in the shadows. And this is something I had difficulty kind of dealing with. In a lot of sections of the book, it is bouncing around between heading types. And Adam and I were talking, for instance, and I had lost track of something. And he's like, Thorgorders. I'm like, they're a weird familiar. And Adam's like, they're not familiars. I'm like, oh, I don't know how headers work. And this is something that kind of happens in the in, in this section. For instance, the Anuk Ite are people eaters who live in hills. The Aiga uh, Muxa are people eaters that live in the plains. The Sky Murmur is a kind of annoying persistent song where suddenly we go to Shisa, the dog statues of the Raiku islands. It is a mix of mostly African, North American and Pacific creatures, which is, which is fine. Um, but to me, one of the things about bygones is they were always kind of hidden and only later do we get some information that says, no, there are reality zones where these creatures will be perfectly fine. Like for instance, the example it gives are of creatures that are just kind of part of the landscape. In a lot of cases, they are uh, quite intelligent. We don't get information as to, for instance, the quintessence that they need to maintain themselves. That was one of the ideas that had been previously listed, that they are constantly dealing with unbelief. The unbelief attribute that is listed later is quite deadly to a lot of these creatures. So I felt like there was a little bit more mechanical lifting. Also, the powers and advantages are almost all combat-based, which suggests that these are kind of Monster of the Week entries. So even the characters that are listed as clever or capable, again, the powers and advantages section just kind of list their combat abilities. The Black Snakes, for instance, are kind of indicated as being these large, long creatures that kind of destroy the memory and quintessence inherent in the land and that they're kind of on the grow, much like the Thorn Gorders maybe. And to me, at that point, you're no longer uh, bygone if you are capable of existing normally and you are, you are spreading. I feel like that might need some other form of classification for it. A lot of these had acceptable art, um, and in many cases it was not quite obvious which one tied to which. I got some pretty good art just Googling it. So if you see one of these and you're like, what do other people think it looked like? Talk to my friend, talk to my friend Google. 
The other thing, though, that also kind of threw me off is in some of these cases, it suggests that these bygones have entire cultures to them or communities and so on. And that is kind of new. Uh, we never got the idea that, for instance, the Chilin listed in previous editions had kind of a culture amongst themselves and they tended to be solitary creatures. But when we're talking about the Chinooki or the Tengu, it is presented as being a bit more woven into the culture. There's a bit more of them and it's something that you could run into. I find this a little jarring in the world of darkness as presented previously. Previously, it makes a little more urban fantasy and a little less world of darkness. As somebody not familiar with the cultures they come from, I would have liked a little less individual information maybe on the creatures and maybe how to weave them into a story. Is a Tengu going to be something that can be in the United States and they're sufficiently woven into the fabric of belief that they are fine? Or if it leaves certain areas of East Asia, do they just kind of die immediately? I, I wasn't quite sure and I would have liked a little bit of help figuring that out. Otherwise, it's a it's a bunch. It's a bunch more creatures. What did you think about chapter three, uh, bestial bestiary? I, I liked the swarm rules. I thought it uh, clicked pretty well. Made sense. It was a, a nice, compact little write up. It's like, man, whoever whoever did this, could they please do some more contributions for the rest of Mage Twenty? Because previous to this, I've seen some rule sections that were just way too wordy and went on way too long and seemed a bit confusing to me. But um, Let's see, looking through, there is a bygone, the Inkanyamba. Uh, you'll have to forgive me if I'm mispronouncing that, but uh, this was like a, a sort of a vaguely dragonish, um, large serpent-like reptilian creature that likes to uh, live in water, and it can very quickly move around lakes and bodies of water, you know, bouncing around the globe, gave some information on its abilities and personality. I thought that was, was quite interesting. It seems like there's some story possibilities there for either a, a mage or an opponent to the player's. Uh, who has gained influence over or control over this creature and can use it to quickly move around the world and accomplish things. Is it, is it using paths of the wick or some sort of parallel mystic secret from the past to do that? I mean, I see possibilities there. That, that could be a lot of fun. We get to the, the Shisa of the Ryukyu Islands. This section was difficult for me. These creatures are, they just seem way too powerful, too common, too accessible. Their ability to erase people seems overpowered to me. It makes the Ryukyu Islands look like a very standout place. It, it seems like if this was, was in the game that I would be running, I would have to explain why every mage in the world didn't uh, pack up and move to the Ryukyu Islands to study the place to find out why did all the magic in the world concentrate here and how can I get my hands on some? Because these, these Shisa are terribly powerful and terribly common. It just really threw me. We have a bygone called the Sky Murmurs, and it says it, it has no appearance, it has no stats, it's just this persistent sound. I thought this this really sounds like more of a plot device than a, a, a bygone. I, I have trouble seeing it that way. And, and as, as Terry already pointed out, the black snakes, you could see how it is something that looks ordinary but has sinister supernatural overtones. But as a bygone, I, I just don't think that it works. Uh, I can't square that. Getting towards the end, the Yao Guai, uh, which um, I, I guess I'm more familiar with is the, the Japanese name Yokai. This section was very disappointing for me. It was, it was very, very simplistic. I, I got to be honest, it was actually kind of cartoonish the way they take the the Oni, the, the traditional sort of uh, devilish ogre beings from older Japanese legends and make them into like nightclub bouncers and bullies. And it just really 
language for me. It has foxes and uh, tanuki, these sort of uh, vaguely raccoon badger-like creatures. It, it's it's a real-world animal, and, but uh, its common name is raccoon dog. It's not really a raccoon. It's not really a dog. But it does kind of look like them. The descriptions for foxes and tanuki are, they describe how they can turn into people, which is something they do in traditional Japanese legends, but it gives no mention of their illusion powers, which is what makes them really what they are. I mean, in my mind, that, that, that defines how anyone would use them in any mage story is their potent illusion powers, which is no mention of it. It's like they can bite, or they can punch, they can claw, they can turn into people. And there you go. And also, there's a, char- a new charm in the back of the book, a spirit charm called False Wealth, where you can hand somebody like a handful of leaves and it looks like a handful of 20s, uh, $20 bills. That is a perfect power for the Tanuki. I mean, that that just totally locks with with so many legends and stories of Tanuki in, in traditional Japan, going back hundreds of years. It, it all mentioned in the Tanuki write up. It's like, so yeah, the Yao Guai section. I was I was really hyped up when I got to it, and very disappointed when I when I made my way through it. Chapter four is entitled Ephemeral Entities, and it covers ephemeral entities. We get a brief thing on like, yep, there's another world. How about that? And then it goes directly into avatars. This is a section that gives a bunch of interesting ideas on what an avatar could look like. One of the things, though, that immediately bothered me is some of the listings gave ideas of what seekings with the entity could look like, and others did not. And I just quite simply thought every section, that should be part of, if you're going to have an avatar stat block, appearance, seeking type, background should kind of be the things there. We get the boss whose seekings are bureaucratic nightmares, which I thought was interesting. We get the character of Crush, who is this kind of uh, dynamic piece of nurture beefcake we get jumble which is a pile of junk that radiates a sense of order and insight one of the things though that throws me off is diegetically the avatar has a name and it acts like people in the world know these names is this that you could be part of a lineage are there several people who have flutterby or grandmother as an avatar are these strictly things that are used when talking between storytellers i wasn't quite sure. Also, in cases where the seekings are indicated as being tied to an archetype, they kind of bend them in a particular direction. For instance, Manic Pixie tends to push on inhibitions. So does that mean that all of their seekings will bend on dealing with inhibitions? And then what does Ascension look like as your Arite kind of increases? I was left with a bunch of questions. I'm glad they are here. I would have liked more shorter ones and some information like I think it would certainly be interesting if a bunch of mages had the same or similar avatar manifestations I think that would be a great justification for a group getting together or a contact that could exist in game I just want a little bit more information the next section is on the jinn or genies and This section I found bothersome quite simply because it felt like it was written from the point of view of the Jinn. Also, we had a third of a book on this topic that in almost every conceivable way covered it in what I considered to be better or more interesting ways. Lost Paths was just a fun book. 
it had some sections where you're like, well, that was a choice, but the Jin section covered on the city of brass, the history of it. And it did something where it was the voice in lost paths was pro Jin, but in such a way that you could tell that the Jin were kind of jerks where it would be something like these mortals wanted food, water and shelter, but they did not understand how it got in the way of our great works in the desert. That is something where you see the Jin perspective as well as the human perspective at the same time. And that kind of tongue-in-cheek writing, I very much like. This was a much more morose telling of it, which can also be a way of presenting it. I just, I did not find it nearly as interesting. We are given the idea that Jin are more spirit than material, where humans are more material than spirit, which is an interesting cosmological idea that they are quite agent, ancient, and they have a bunch of information, and we are given a bunch of information that may not be right. They are listed as working heavily with other Umbrood, which is interesting because we never get any information about them dealing with the, for instance, the spires or the broods of the middle Umbra. The, the characters presented are pretty powerful, but do almost nothing with it. For instance, uh, Amira the Storyteller is listed as going from town to town to create mirages and inspire children. This is a character with manipulation six and intelligence six. I am constantly amazed in the world of darkness how characters of such great potence are like, ah, they have an intelligence of 19 and they read to children in a library on Saturdays. If the, <laughs> and you're like, that's, that's a choice. I am always thrown off when it has exceptional characters that are not doing exceptional things. If, if you're going to have a, a scrappy character doing scrappy things, that's fine. If you're going to have a potent character doing potent things, that's fine. Uh, the mismatch there is something that I kind of get thrown off by. We get no information about the City of Brass. We get no information about their centers of power. The genie are located. It mentions their interactions with Sufis, which Sufi Islam is now associated with the Batini, which we I don't feel we had gotten information about them interacting Previously, there's a comment about how it refers to, there's a certain group of uh, Jewish jinn that are referred to as devils, and that, that seemed like a choice, and that's something we don't get any information on. It's just one of those things where sometimes a book needs to just state information that's in previous books, but for a current edition. For instance, the write-ups for animals probably haven't changed much between editions. That's fine. I appreciate that we did get three new Jin characters, but I don't think we got enough insight to use them really in an interesting way. I don't really feel it expanded terribly beyond what we had gotten before. So if you like this take where the Jin are more hard up, I would have liked a few more paragraphs maybe explaining current Jin interactions as opposed to kind of feelings about the creation of the greater seal of Solomon. The next section is entitled Lesser Entities, and these are just a bunch of ephemeral entities that I thought were kind of interesting. We get the data fight, which each stray thoughts. We get the grinders, who are technological minions of Lord Viscount Talos Perdix, which is a character we've gotten across editions, along with I Lead a Lady of Feathers, which we also get an update for, which pleased me to no end. And the Alshard write-up was quite lengthy and kind of tied together one of the key themes about Al in this book, which is the nature of fear and the nature of fighting against it. The one thing that threw me off is in some parts of the entry, it said that Al finds its home in those who fight oppression. And in other places, it says Al finds its home in those who beat down and abuse 
confuse other people. The entry to me in a couple places did not feel internally consistent in a way that I found kind of confusing. But the idea that there are these little bits that lodge themselves in people's hearts and cause them to become cold and callous and mean, I like that as an interesting idea, either as a metaphor or as a literal thing um, that could cause the creation of Banes. But the uh, the write-up just in one or two places, I'm like, wait, what? I'm not, I'm not following this. We then get a section entitled Personages, which gives us a few umbral creatures. So we get Ailita Lady of Feathers, who was possibly a former mage who works in the umbral courts. They give a number of contradictory backstories, which I think all of them are perfectly fine. Uh, we get La Huercera, the uh, the bone woman who finds people who have been utterly forgotten and reanimates them to become new people. I like this kind of as a story idea, as a way of trying to bring back to life somebody your character has lost. The tricky part is it specifically says that no memory of the person can persist. This seems like one of those things where clever magic could come to the bear, where you take all the memories of the person and store them in a, a memory jar or a book and forget them and are able to bring them back and try and relearn it and this could be a perfectly reasonable justification for a kind of resurrection in game we get an update on what lord viscount talos perdix is up to we get a new technological realm which is the area they inhabit and then we get zitsumime which I, I think is a aztec or a mayan character who is just kind of this somewhat enigmatic figure that protects women and encourages the birth of a new life and appears in this like guise of skeletal ferocity. I love these. I would have, if you had been like, Terry, would you like 15 more of these? I would have been shut up and take my money. They were fun. They had interesting powers. I probably would have liked um, a few more unique ones, but uh, again, I'll take it. We also then get paradox manifestations. We get the idea that there are characters called the Arinies, and we get a bunch of detailed backstory on that. I think a little bit too much. I found it difficult to follow it points, but that there's a class of paradox spirits that punish mages for abuse of entropy and hubris. And we get a whole bunch of different ones. They are quite potent. They are hard to get rid of. In fact, one of the things that kind of concerns me is historically paradox spirits kind of mess with you and either give you a problem to deal with and only on the very high end, just kind of straight out murderate you. Um, the Arinies that we got seem to be closer to those murder spirits and we didn't really get information on how to deal with them in terms of how to escape them or how to placate them. Uh, we then got a few more paradox spirits. A bunch of them are brought back from previous editions. Farawadi, the kind of amorphous clown that will teleport you to a dangerous location, a uh, hex, which forces you to botch your next non-magic role, which I thought was perfectly interesting. We get swipe that can kind of shove you to some other place in reality. We then get totem spirits. We then get an aside that says, hey, don't use the word totem, which brings up the question, just invent another term and call it something different. Uh, spirit companion, spirit patron. There's there's enough other things to use. We can just drop the term at this point. We get some information on what they are. We get the brood information for cat, cockroach, uh, Joe Dread, Mama Plenty, Mr. Black, Trip, and Wolf. The problem I have with these is they're boring. The, the characters as presented are fine. It gives you an idea of what the manifestations could be. The abilities are just tied to abilities. You don't get a charm. You don't get a knack. You don't get a boon of any sort. And you still get the ban. And to me, one of the interesting things about having a spirit patron like this is it gives you access to some 
paradox-free, seemingly magical ability. And that was one of the fun things we got in Infinite Tapestry, where if you were blessed by a particular muse, you had the ability to work at superhuman speed for a period of up to a week to make a artistic work or something like that. Or you were able to compose a poem to sway people's hearts on the fly. And I just found those much more flavorful and interesting. I do like the fact that they give non-mythological, non-animal totems as option. For instance, Mr. Black is the spirit patron that kind of demands that you have the best of everything. And I like the idea of technocrats secretly having spirit patrons and not really necessarily knowing about it. The next section is on god forms, which is something that has kind of been mentioned before in Mage. And there's a brief overview of kind of like belief types. And these are entities that are listed as being beyond statistics that are empowered by human thought, but we don't actually get any idea of what they do if you encounter how are you going to encounter Anansi the spider the keeper of tales are they someone you just pray to are there we don't get information that they are in a realm that can be visited we don't get information really about necessarily what their agendas are like favors that you could trade with them or cases where they would be interested in what a mage is doing some of these are wildly differing in terms of the number of mortals that would believe in them for instance we get information about Christ the good shepherd and it indicates that there's a bunch of different variants of, of Jesus running around out there. Kind of a figure backed by the belief of something in the neighborhood of billions. I don't feel like I got enough information on how to actually use the darn things. My closest guess is that they would be characters that a mage would call upon when doing an effect to indicate, hey, this is the power I am notionally invoking within my magic, which is fine, but I don't think it justifies then write-ups of this this length. Uh, a bunch of them certainly were new to me. I am no master of world culture. Maul Lisa, the twin parents, uh, and Breath of Life. Kudu, the old tortoise. Cain, the self-made man, in a very literal sense, I thought was interesting. I did enjoy the new write-up of the Nine Muses that indicated that they had been kind of uh, twisted by modern belief, and they were kind of dealing with a type of, of mania and madness. They list Urania as being the only unchanged muse for sciences eternal or something like that. I just didn't know how to use them. And some of the entries are quite long for something that I don't know how to use. We then get a new section on the greater Kami. We get the idea that each Kami has some sort of domain. And now I want information on that domain. Uh, give me information about the realm. Again, the same problems as before. I don't have information on how to contact them. I don't know where I would want them to be in a story. I, I think uh, Hachiman, Lord of Martial Order, who demands decisive action, is pretty neat. And Amaterasu Omikami, who kind of is an agent of justice. How are they going to be in a story? Do they interface with the spires? Are they strictly objects of devotion? Except for the fact that it makes mention to the Otherworld Court and Sukuyomi has a moon base. Again, I'm not just, I just don't know how to use it. I need a little bit, a little bit more background. Also, they are listed kind of as an aside. Again, if they're going to be a special entity, I need a lot more information about how I can use them in a story. At this level of detail, it is really not much more than I could have gotten from quickly reading a Wikipedia article. We then get a more extensive bit on the Loa. And these, on the other hand, though, were listed as being intercessory. These are characters that will act on your behalf, that they, they accept in treatments to act. They trace the Loa from the Orishas of Yoruban culture, that they need to be worshipped to be maintained 
It also mentions, for instance, that if Yamaja isn't being sufficiently worshipped, it can cause issues in childbirth. And that really feels like blaming the victim in some cases, where it's like, oh, bad thing happened to you. Guess you weren't worshipping hard enough. It also pushes back against the idea of, uh, of syncretism, which I like. One of the things that some previous mage text has done is being like, well, these things are all the same. And this is like, nope. It also indicates that the Loa are creatures of the Middle Umbra. It doesn't really give a reason why. We don't get a lot of information about Middle Umbral entity realms. So I would want to see more information. And and it's one of those things where it just kind of makes them seem like they're more uh, base or primitive in some way, which I, I don't think is the case. We've never really gotten information about gods or godlike things that were not like the animal broods in the Middle Umbra, so I would have liked more of that. It also has a weird aside where it talks about how the Loa are different from saints, and it makes mention that the European saints don't need food or sex or sleep. That's news to me, and that they just carried out God's will. No, uh, the definition of saint varies widely across European faith practices. And I, I just don't know that, <laughs> that that is the case. Also, we've never gotten a saint before, which you figure by this point we would have gotten. It returns to the idea that spirit writing lets people accomplish wonderful things. For more information on this, I recommend looking at either Spirit Ways or Book of Crafts. The Loa are listed as being mortal, but they are spirits, but they need to inhabit a person. The, the write-up just felt kind of muddled to me in terms of what it was trying to convey. But after that, we get a whole bunch of pretty interesting Loa that a character can use. This is a lot of information for a very particular paradigm. We get some popular Loa that are probably made their way into uh, pop culture at this point. Baron Samedi, Papa Legba, Keeper of the Crossroads. And then we get a bunch of others like Ogun, Master of Tools, who is a Worshipped by all those who carry out a trade. Obatala, the, the Sky Father, who is the eldest of all gods, who lives in a, a white palace on a high mountain surrounded by tall walls that extend into the sky. I always like an opportunity to peer into the associations that other cultures make. Uh, we get Oya, Our Lady of Rage, Shango the Thunderer. I thought, again, it was interesting and useful. It was a lot for one culture that hadn't been covered before. And every time I see something like this, I'm like, man, maybe one day we'll get a mage book that covers the more than 1 billion people that live in the Indian subcontinent. But again, that is not a knock against it. That is my desire to see something added. And that was me talking a lot. Uh, Adam, what did you think about chapter four? Well, it was four? a big chapter. Yeah. So, I, mean, like, <laughs> I tried to was, move. Was just, hey, can you tell me about chapter four? It's like, you're going to be talking for a while because that was one you like to talk chapter. <laughs> it's an ephemeral creatures. It's like, that's an ephemeral title. Yeah, well, it's good because it covers a lot of ground. We had to call it something. Yep. So... <laughs> Skipping ahead a bit in the chapter, there were the totem spirits towards the back, and you know, there was a sidebar saying, we shouldn't call it totems, but we've been calling it totems for so long, and there's this whole werewolf game, and we're just going to keep using this term, but we're very, very sorry about it. And it's like, well, you know, on the one hand, I agree with Terry. It's like, if you want to change the name, you can change the name. I mean, you change the whole instrument focus thing in Mage 20, and it's like, while well, you're at it. In Towards the end of the chapter, we get a bunch of totem spirits. Again, just like the Mage core book, there are a lot of abstract, human-like totems, and I really like this. I, I think this is one of the really creative parts of Mage 20. I like this sort of abstract notion of one small facet of, of many different people manifesting as a being you can interact with. There was I, there was an illustration of like this uh, tall formal coat with like a pair of sunglasses floating above it, like some imposing authority figure that was somehow invisible yet there at the same time 
I don't know which one that connected to in the write-ups. I think it was supposed to represent one of them. I don't know which one, but just that image, it just stuck with me. I would use these as, as more than uh, more than totem spirits in my games. I would I would make them these spirit entities that mages run into on occasion in uh, suburban and especially urban areas, but but not uh, rural or, or wilderness. I, I would say these mages have a vague, multiple conflicting names, and mages are trying to work out like what what are these things and why are they appearing and what do they mean? And sometimes they do something good, sometimes they do something bad, sometimes they just show up and let you know that they're there and then they disappear again. I, I really like presenting that mystery to my players and having them figure out what what, what does this represent anyways. Getting back to a procession through the, the chapter, we start off with avatars and when I first started reading this section, my thought was, no, don't give us a list of avatars to pick from. We should make our own. I like that. But as I read through the, the section, I actually warmed up to it because there were some very interesting examples here. Now, what I did not like was a lot of the avatar write-ups focused very much on the relationship between the avatar and the mage, and they tended to forget what an avatar is and what an avatar does. I think a lot of different people contributed to this section and some of them were like, hey, I've got a really great idea for an avatar. And you know, the developer perhaps need to talk with them and say, okay, what is an avatar? Oh, that's what you think an avatar is. Well, let me tell you what I think an avatar is. And maybe we can, you know, join in the middle here for this write-up. There is a, an avatar called Mask, which appears as different forms of actual you know, masks that people cover their faces with in different traditional cultures of the world, African, uh, Polynesian, and, and some others. It was interesting how it states that it, at first it's like sort of frightening and imposing, and it, it seems like it suggests deception, but you know, through multiple seekings, the maids learns that, no, this is not a threatening figure. This is uh, an insightful and helpful figure. It's, it's just a very mysterious one. And so I, I really liked that one. See, there was also the uh, the Flutterby avatar, which uh, again was, was interesting. I mean, the, the write-up kept repeatedly talking about how um, you, your mage had an abusive father in the past. I'm like, oh, okay, not, not every mage has that. And I've certainly seen that a lot of times in mage books in the past. But once you can push past that, this idea that when you have a seeking, there's like this glamorous little butterfly that will sort of rest on something or lead you in a certain direction and you'll find something insightful if you follow it and if you ignore it then um, you're not going to find that thing and so just this very very subtle sort of an avatar which i think is nice because in the past um, even in mage 20 we've had a number of write-ups where it says the avatar is, is frightening and imposing and mages don't like seekings because it's like the avatar grabs the back of their head and shoves their face into some knowledge and it's like you know you, you can do this differently Flutterby is like just something that grabs your attention, makes you kind of wonder and leads you in a certain direction. I, I think you can have some, some interesting seekings uh, with players. The hunter avatar was interesting. It, it seems to be like this frightening spirit that perhaps you can't even see, but you hear it and it, it shows up and it drives you in a certain direction during your seeking so that you're running and trying to escape it. And, it, and in the process, you stumble into some insight. It was interesting, but I, it seemed like it was too simplistic. If every single time you have a seeking, it's, oh, no, run, or I'm going to get stepped on. This is going to get old after a while. I think it's it's better to say that in the early stages, yes, you're, you're being chased, and, and uh, in, in the process, you run into something interesting. But over time, it becomes a sort of game that you perceive the rules of it, and you're sort of halfway playing a game with the avatar, and then more time progresses and okay now you're hunting together and you need to keep up with it or you're going to miss the insight that it's driving towards i, I thought that could be an, an interesting 
way to use it. Another avatar stalks the master. It's a big, scary wolf, and it's going to kill you if you don't run for your life. Now move your, move your butt. And it, it's basically don't fall into laziness. You know, get up and, and get active, or you're not going to advance towards ascension. It's like, well, okay, that part of it I, I can see. But the way this is presented is, is just a, a terrifying, frightening monster that, that scares you out of your wits every single time you encounter it. It's like, okay, look, enough of these seekings, and your player character is going to be saying, no, no, I don't want a seeking. But you can't advance your arity. I'm fine with that. I'll advance my skills. I'm good. <laughs> it's like thinking in terms of the setting, if, if every seeking is like that, it's going to drive a mage towards depression or insanity. So I, this, this stalks the master avatar. I, I think... This needs to be reconsidered before it dropped into your games because, I don't know, I, I wouldn't use it as is. We've got this uh, section, there's a small section of uh, umbral beings that are completely invented. They were invented for mage. They're not pulled from any real world anything. And I, I really liked uh, this section. There's uh, Lord Viscount Talos Perdix. Well, is he a lord or is he a Viscount? He's both. And if you don't recognize both, he's going to be very upset and you're going to be sorry. Uh, this is a sort of a mysterious being that is uh, somehow connected with uh, technology, but he's not like a scientist who sits you down and lectures to you. He's sort of a mystical connection to technology. And I, and I sort of liked the sort of blending of the two notions, uh, science and technology versus mysticism. They're not necessarily mutually exclusive. And so I, I thought this would be a very a fun uh, character to use. And also the paradox spirit swipe. Um, I don't remember, but I think this may be new in this book. I don't remember seeing it before. Uh, the swipe paradox spirit was, was very interesting to me. It shows up, and of course, it's going to punish you for accruing too much paradox. But instead of just causing you physical damage or pushing you into the paradox realm, it's going to blink you so that you appear somewhere else in the real world, far away from where you started, which, of course, is terribly inconvenient. It might even drop you into a different uh, reality zone or someone else's uh, home territory where, where suddenly you have to uh, protect yourself. And so I, I just thought this was such an interesting notion of cross-pollination between sort of online chat room video game notions of, oh, you know, suddenly my avatar or character in this uh, chat uh, room or video game is suddenly somewhere else, but this is so common in internet and video games, but it's like now we're, we're pulling that into real life. And so it's like offline and online sort of weirdly affect each other. And I think that's, I think it's, it's appropriate for Mage. And I think a, a, a storyteller could have a lot of fun with that. So I really like that one. The section on the gym, I, t I totally agree with what uh, Terry stated. And I was actually thinking the same thing. Jin uh, were introduced in revised edition of Mage in the Lost Paths book, which was again, a lot of fun as a book. And the write-up for Jin there, what was interesting, it, it gave different possibilities. It, it sort of gave two perspectives at the same time. Yeah, the, the Jin have a beef with humanity, but you know what? The Jin kind of are, they're, they're strange and uh, they're pretty arrogant at the same time. And so not all of their complaints should be taken at face value. And, and I like that. But here in this book, it, it seems to have uh, too many links to real world religions that I think were, were not very helpful and might even get a storyteller into some uh, difficult territory if they try to pull all those links to real world religions into their games. Also, this, this portrayal of Jin as a persecuted minority, it wasn't fun. It didn't make them appealing, just you know, yet more issues and injustices to bring up when Mage 20 does a good job of presenting many other different injustices with real groups of people in the real world. So yeah, I, I think um, if you want to use Jin, I think there's a lot of possibilities there, but, but go back and look at Lost Paths because I, I just think it's a 
nicer way to offer it to people. We get owl shards, uh, which really, to me, looked like another name for Bane spirits. I was reading through it and I was thinking, how is this? How are these owl shards not Bane spirits? It said that an owl shard can take the place of a mage's avatar. Basically, if it if an owl shard latches onto a person and then that person awakens and becomes a mage, instead of their avatar, the owl shard is their avatar. It's like, okay, that might be an interesting idea, but I, I think we're monkeying with the core concepts of, of mage in a way that uh, could get pretty sticky pretty fast. I'm not sure I'm going to run with that. Right after we get the owl walkers, which are non-mages who are, are very much connected with an owl shard, and they have become a sort of semi-supernatural creature. They have certain powers that they can use. And the owl walkers, as written up on that page, I, I didn't think were terribly appealing, but I'm glad that that write-up is there because it suggests to storytellers that the special advantages in chapter five for, for concerts and familiars, uh, you can just take a couple of those, drop them onto a, a regular uh, human being sort of template from the uh, Mage 20 core book, and you can make a new minor group of supernatural beings that you can pull into your mage games. And as long as you pull it in with a little bit of mystery, I think that can be very interesting. Oh, this mage is messing with me. Oh, he's not a mage at all, but he's not a vampire or a were creature. What is this guy? I think there's a lot of possibilities there. So I'm glad that was suggested uh, to storytellers. We have a being called the, the Chilean, which I'm probably butchering that pronunciation. I believe it's from Chinese. I'm more used to encountering the Japanese pronunciation of Kirin. That was very odd for me. That was very jarring as I was reading through chapter four. I suddenly hit this description that is, it's, it's like it's not quite done. It's like a rough draft. Then there's the being of, I'm probably going to mispronounce this, a Bandye is a sort of a background, a greater deity figure from, I think, the, the Loa. Uh, it's not a being that uh, the Bata are used to interacting with directly, but it's sort of uh, a given there. And this seems like more of a concept, really, than a god form. It's like, I, I don't see how anyone could, or even should, according to the description, bring this into a scene with mage characters. It seems like something that people talk about every once in a while and no more. So having the write-up in here seems sort of odd to me. It's like, this is supposed to be beings I can pull into my games, but Bandia is one I'm not supposed to pull into my game. So why is it here? And, and like Terry said, the, the God Forms uh, section has uh, no game stats, which I got to say, I understand. I, I have heard past interviews with Sotero Spicato, and he uh, cited the first edition D&D supplement, I believe it was called Deities and Demigods, where it basically pulls in gods from different real world religions and gives them game stats. And, and uh, Ricardo said, as soon as you do that, the players are going to say, oh, well, if it has stats, I can kill it. And then I can brag about how I killed a god. And it's like, okay, I guess, I guess so. The D&D community has been discussing for years how that Deities and Demigods book was uh, half-baked. But um, in this god form section, there are no stats. So that way the player character mages can never kill these god forms. It's like, well, okay, that, I, I guess I can kind of see that. Um, you, you're not supposed to have the god form of Odin appear and say, ha, I stabbed him in the back, now he's dead. That would be rather silly. But then on the other case, I think there is an argument for a stat block on these beings, and not in terms of health levels and armor, but in terms of what effect are they going to have on all the beings in this scene when they manifest? I mean, are they going to make everybody calmer? Are they going to make everybody more uh, willing to argue with each other or more insightful or more willing to do this or that or more able to do this, that or the other thing? 
I think a stat block like that would make storytellers want to pull these god forms into their games. Like, oh, now I know what to do with this god form. It has this effect on everyone when it shows up. But instead, going through the god form section is just some long, as Terry mentioned, some of these descriptions are, are quite long. But there, there's no stats. There's no kind of handle on it. There's no mention of where you would run into these beings. Uh, do they have realms? I, I think they were sort of assuming that we would understand that every one of these god forms has their own umbral court. It's like, well, okay, if that's the case, then what boon are you going to get when you get to that umbral court? What other beings are you going to encounter in that umbral court? What is the or sort of uh, guidelines going into this interaction? It's like everybody who meets uh, this this god form in their umbral court should be aware of this or should avoid doing that. That kind of thing would be very helpful. Instead, we just get these very long descriptions saying this is what the god forms are like. It's like, well, um, okay, so what do I kind of do with them? Even though it's kind of belonged in the God Forms section, there is a separate breakout section called Greater Kami, which is basically Japanese God Forms. So it seems like it should have been in the God Forms section, but there's like, uh, what, three or four of them, they're in alphabetical order. So I, I guess I can kind of understand why they have their own section. I'm not going to uh, disparage that. But uh, I was really excited when I hit this because, you know, I've, I've been reading a number of uh, Japanese culture and, and legend kind of books and uh, some history books. And so I was all excited. But when I got through this section, they're simple. A lot of them are even crude. They're very jokey. All of the god forms in this book are written up in a way that they are seen, they come across as, as majestic. Uh, these are uh, beings that many real world people uh, respect. And so when you bring them into your games, you should do it respectfully. It's like, okay, I understand that. If I pull in the Loa or, or Pan from Greek uh, mythology, uh, I should be respectful. I shouldn't uh, you know, put a whoopee cushion under them and sit down. But when in the greater Kami section for these Japanese god forms, the write-ups encourage contempt for them. It seems like we're, we're supposed to look down on them and see them as inferior somehow. And so it, it didn't match with the rest of the book. And, and so that, that was very jarring for me. It's like, I, I don't understand why it is done like this. But um, yeah, I, I would just like to see a, a, a rewrite of this section. I think... Um, a lot more could have been done to tie these uh, these Japanese god forms into what modern mages are doing. Like some mention of how are they are they doing anything for modern mages, or are modern mages uh, spreading any rumors about what they're up to these days? It, it just gave information that seemed to work like maybe a thousand years ago, but um, you wonder if it really applies these days. Uh, moving into the the long section on the Orishas or, or the Loa. It is a very big chunk of this chapter, and I sort of understand why it's here. It's it's to help players who want to play Bata um, uh, craft from the, the Disparates. Uh, it gives them sort of a background, uh, helps with their paradigm and how who they would uh, petition when they're trying to accomplish certain things in the game. So I get why they're here. Let's see, the, the Baron Samedi write-up was, was odd for me because he said he can automatically read minds of, of everyone when he manifests. It's like... I'm not, I'm not sure I'm ready for that. You can read everyone's minds, no role needed, uh, no, no mention of game mechanics of how you might resist something like this. I think that would cross too many lines for me to use in my game. And also, I know this sounds pedantic, but yes, I am going to go there. There is a bloodline of vampires called the Samedi. So my question is, what does Baron Samedi think of that? Is, is he upset by that? Does he tell the Bata, hey, I want you to move against those uh, Samedi vampires because they're a bunch of fakers? Or, or does he think it's funny? And he, he tells the Bataan to leave him alone because he respects them in an odd sort of way. I mean, I, I don't know. I just want some kind of mention of this because you've got a group of vampires saying, yeah, we're the Samedi. And then you've got Baron Samedi. It's like, hey, hey, boss, what do you think of those guys? I mean, honestly, I, 
I just want to know. Let's finish off the uh, the Loa Obatala fiercely looks down on people who farm snails. Just about everybody I know has a garden and they do everything they can to keep snails out of the garden. So does Obatala hate like a large percentage of all the humans on planet Earth who are gardeners or, or not? That seems a little odd. I mean, are Bata allowed to keep snails out of their gardens or, or they have to just let the snails run through it? Um, that, that was sort of an odd detail to add there. But, uh, but yes, that was a long chapter. I've probably been talking a little too long now. So let's take a look. Chapter five. Chapter five, uh, our systems chapter. It's called Crafting Characters, and it guides us through the process of crafting characters. It talks about types of characters that you can be, whether you be alien, animal, bygone, construct, familiar, object, reanimate, robot, which are somehow different than constructs and objects, and spirits. It guides you through a bunch of basic questions to figure out how your character is going to go. This chapter is done with the idea that you may choose to play a non-mortal, non-mage, non-other supernatural line character. And it wants to give some rules on that, on ideas of build points and so on, and how to set up and gives you proper character creation information. Uh, it asks, uh, where do you live? Why are you still around? What are your view of magic? How are you treated by mages? And in turn, how do you treat them? Um, it then has a kind of discourse on how does the type of body you have influence your worldview? What form does it have? What do your social interactions look like? How are you communicating? And what do you communicate? And then we get rules. I don't really have feelings on these. It is remarkably hard, much like merits and flaws, to balance point values and such. Uh, some of them are ridiculous and lead to weird things. For instance, if you use the familiar rules as printed, you can generally create a more potent familiar than if you were to just use what was in the core, especially when it comes to things like paradox consumption. Um, Unbelief will murderate you fast. You take literally damage every turn. So if a turn is between three and ten seconds, most creatures will die in under under a minute and a half. And that uh, that kind of stinks. Uh, even if you have the lesser version, it does bashing damage, which means you'll last up to two minutes unless you have a lot of uh, additional health it does give some interesting flaws that may be useful for other creatures. For instance, it gives you a mechanic to talk about weak spots where it's like, hey, if you were able to make the hit here, you automatically do six unsuckable damage and so on. Little things like, hey, if you shapeshift, you can keep your clothing. Some of the titling is a little bit odd in that it indicates things as being points, but in other cases, it simply refers to them as flaws. So some of the titling is a little bit weird. The systems for plant control and elemental touch are detailed. So if you want 15 points of elemental touch, we have information on what that would mean. And it's a whole bunch of things that you could use or slightly modify to create a character of your choosing. Uh, likewise, we get a few more spirit charms and some write-ups of, of systems behind those, which again, I'm glad that they exist. And then we get some recommended reading. So I don't really have a lot of thoughts about that character creation section before we get into our thoughts on the book as a whole, Adam, what'd you think about chapter five? I really enjoyed chapter five. Uh, it's I've said in the past, I, I really liked uh, Ascension's right hand bygone bestiary. I, I just think it's a lot of fun. It opens up new kinds of uh, character options. So I like this book because of chapter five. I have talked with some mage fans and uh, they've asked uh, why, how, how do consorts get these consort powers like the special advantages listed in this book? 
I always just sort of assumed that mages making, you know, the first two editions of the game, they would make these horizon realms where magic was real and they were, it was a very different place from Earth. It was physically separated from planet Earth to a, to a degree. And so, you know, you, you put regular humans there and yeah, some of them might have uh, weird effects from that. Uh, there might be a Celestine that manifests in a horizon realm. There's going to be a lot less paradox generated than manifesting on, on the real Earth. And so after they leave, then they might have uh, had a very strong effect on someone who was standing a little too close and other things like that. Um, you have a bunch of concerts who spend a lot of time right next to a node uh, on Earth. And you know, this might have an effect on that. So I, I don't think it's ridiculous to say that concerts have these weird powers that they try to keep secret. And you bring up something I wish Mage had, that system for what happens when weird stuff just kind of has happens to mortals and they pick up weird quirks over time. It's something that's popped up before. I love it and I want a system for it. So yeah, yeah. I agree. I'm interrupting to say <laughs> you're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that would be a lot of fun. And Hey, mage 20 books are still coming out. So we, we might see that it's a lot of fun. It gives a set of points on um, how to do character generation for concerts and acolytes. And it says that they should have lower uh, attributes and, and skill points than mages because mages should be the star of the show. Um, I can see that point, but um, when I'm doing acolytes, I follow that. When I'm doing concerts, I don't. For when I am having people roll up concerts, I say, look, you can have the same points for in character generation for um, attributes, skills, uh, backgrounds, etc. because uh, concerts are supposed to stand shoulder to shoulder with mages and be capable. And with some of the weird powers that are called special advantages in this chapter, um, someone might say, oh, well, if... Um, you have a concert that has special power X and, and, and Y, aren't you worried that they're going to take over the places that are just as strong as mages? And I actually don't worry about that because as characters get more and more experience points and spend them, mages become, of course, uh, a lot more powerful. And with consors, I, I don't necessarily see that. I don't see a consort racking up experience points and going to the special advantages and saying, now I'm going to get this weird power and this weird power. And now I'm going to double it. So it's twice as powerful. It's like if you've got a, a level-headed storyteller, they're going to say, whoa, whoa, hold on there, Sparky. You're not doing that. <laughs> that would be silly. So I think that mages grow in power quite quickly, uh, whereas concerts ne don't necessarily. So I don't see a problem in the setting where concerts are going to take over Horizon Realms and Chantries and kick mages out and say, I'm the boss now. I'm just not worried about it. There's a section here, a rather long section, on uh, the non-human mindset, which is, I guess, supposed to help storytellers who are portraying umbral beings and players who are going to have as their player character a familiar. And um, it basically tells you how to get into the mindset of a non-human character to have think differently, and that'll uh, result in, in you know different role playing during sessions, and that should be interesting. It's like, well, I agree with the principle of that, but this this actual section was uh, quite long. It wasn't really very helpful. Uh, there's a flaw in here called uh, unbelief, which is uh, meant to work on uh, bygones and other strange umbral creatures that manifest physical bodies that are obviously fanciful or, or um, impossible. I think that having TAS uh, should strengthen you against the effect of unbelief. That's been a part of every edition of Mage. But the way it is implemented here, I, I don't agree with. Um, having TAS uh, fortifies you against unbelief so well that if you follow the rules as written in this book, I, I think you're actually going to have to deal with why uh, what do we do about the manticores on Main Street? Because uh, you know you give them a little TAS and they just go wild. 
So I, I would tone that one down a bit. Yes, tasks should help against unbelief, but not, not like this. I really like the special advantages section. There's a lot of, of weird powers in there. Um, a storyteller should go through and knock out the ones that they think are just too much for their game. But after you do that, I think there's a lot here. There's a lot to offer. Uh, it's great for consort characters that are not mages, but have some cool powers. And I say that because I have had a couple of players come into my games and they you, know, you start to tell them about the magic system or the sphere system, they go, whoa, that is over my head. I just wanted to play two or three sessions, have a little fun and move on. I don't want to learn all this stuff. Is there an option for me? And it's like, yeah, why don't you play a consort? You have these three cool powers. They do exactly this, nothing more, go. And they're happy. So I, I really have the special advantages. And as I said, um, I want them in Mage 20 because as a storyteller, I want to make some weird new kind, some class of supernatural beings that shows up and causes havoc, but uh, they don't fit into the magic rules as such. And so I want the special advantages to enable me as a storyteller to have that kind of fun. There is a, a special ability called Ferocity, which is basically um, a lesser form of rage for rare creatures. Um, you can do more damage, you can get stronger, you can uh, resist damage more easily. I thought that was really cool. Um, it does not let you heal damage like uh, where creatures do with their rage, but I would actually consider uh, adding that in because I just, I have found that putting where creatures into my mage games can overpower things pretty quickly, but a watered down version of that handed out to a concert, I, I think that could be really cool. A lot of fun. There's a hazardous, hazardous breath advantage. Uh, basically, you can breathe fire, acid, etc. Um, I thought it was too expensive. I, I think the cost should be taken down a bit. I think it should also have a more generic write-up of, um, you know, what if what if the creature can like shoot uh, needles off of its uh, out of its tail or, or something like that. It's not always coming out of the mouth. There's something about needle teeth. It's basically a very damaging bite that is supposed to be for, for bygones and some familiars. I would just extend that to claws, make it a claws power. I think there's good reason for that. Uh, there's a power called homing instinct. Uh, whenever you wander into the strange realms of the Umbra or other you know, zones or, or places like that, then you can always find your way home. I like that, but what I really want is a general umbral wayfinder. I, I think a special advantage where you could take a person who's not a mage, they go into the umbra, and it's like, I want to go to this realm. It's like, well, I've never been to that realm. I don't know much about it, but I'm feeling we ought to go this way. That is a way to take a non-mage uh, consort and make them really, really valuable to mages so that you could get like some sort of some skinny teenage girl acolyte who can't fight for anything, but she is so valuable that you just want to take her into the umbra. And so mages are always coming up with justifications, but then other mages are like, no, we don't want her to get hurt. You guys do dangerous work. And so I, I think there's a lot of interesting possibilities there. So a general umbral wayfinder power should be added in here. Maybe take the homing instinct, make it a little more expensive. There are new ch uh, charms for, for spirit beings. Um, it's hinted that they can also be used for familiars if the storyteller allows it. But, but basically, these are ways to uh, make the um, umbral spirits in your games have more capabilities. And I actually liked the plant control charm. It is very detailed. It might be more detailed right than some people need. I can totally understand if storyteller says, look, I'm, I'm just gonna hand wave this. If it's an NPC, Umbrood, it's only in one scene of the game. It's gonna make the plants grab you. And if you wanna um, fight your way out, three uh, bat bashing levels of damage and you can break out of the vines. Okay, fine, that's great. But for story, some storytellers really do want more detailed abilities. And uh, if you want that, I think this write-up is, is well done. It's reasonable. If you want to get into the details, they are here for you. And um, even though if you, it gives an example of using plants to do a number of cool things at the same time, and it costs like 14 points. But yeah, but 
when the um, what is it the unbrewed lords who who had their own spirit courts manifest on Earth, they, they they should be pretty kick butt. They they should have a lot of points to spend to bash people around. And uh, so so I'm okay with that. I just love that. Love me some chapter five on character generation and new powers. So general thoughts, Terry. What did you generally think about this general book? Uh, this book was uh, a big, glorious mess, and we haven't really gotten one in M20, and I was I was glad to see it. The art, in a lot of cases, was absolutely mediocre, but they had to cover a lot. In almost every case, I'm like, this is lame. I'm going to Google it. Wow, that's great. Uh, it is unfair to pit a book against the world's cultures. I understand that, but... Please know that that is there. Adam brought up a thing where Adam had a jarring encounter with some of the cultural representations. And I am super split on that because I liked, for instance, the muse entry that was like, yeah, these creatures have kind of gone mad in the modern world and they have this weird emanation. But what that write-up did was it said, this is what they used to be and this is what they could be. And I feel like for a lot of the entries, if you're going to deviate from, let's say, the received wisdom, as it were, like the the general understanding of a creature, you kind of include both. You say, hey, this is an interesting departure that you can make for the world of darkness. And to just be like, yep, they're this now, um, I, I think is, is confusing sometimes to me as a reader. Entries relied on merits and flaws to help mechanize various states. There simply aren't enough merits really to cover what they wanted to. I would have liked a couple more. I've really warmed on merits and flaws as a way of representing persistent states because M20 doesn't have tilts, conditions, and so on, a la, say, Chronicles of Darkness. For instance, bio-enhanced field agent has additional health levels, and we don't have a system to just give people health levels, really, outside of kind of the weird quintessence system or implied through giving someone additional statistics. The typesetting felt inconsistent. Um, some point values are offset, and other times they weren't. On a humorous end, a bunch of creatures had both break reality and create wind, which I kept reading as break wind. I wish the... Entries were much more explicit with giving plot hooks. This went back to something that happened in first edition where they had plot studs where uh, story options were just kind of implied and you kind of had to make your own uh, for something this big, especially when it has to do with another culture that I am not familiar with and I don't want to step in it. Give me some examples of how a character can reasonably interface with them to give me some kind of guideline. Maybe do it at like, uh, for lack of a better term, the Pantheon level. Maybe give me plot hooks for the Kami or the Loa, and we don't need it at the individual level, I would certainly take both. I thought it was interesting that there were a lot of questions on how to construct a consort, but we didn't get a lot of questions on how to flesh out NPCs in terms of questions that you should ask about uh, mortals and the way that they view things. A lot of the write-ups are born of abuse. Very few of the characters comparatively has a sense of wonder to them. This was a kind of a, a brutal, visceral book, seemingly in comparison, and I would have liked a little bit more tonal spread from there. Again, as I mentioned before, in a lot of cases, they're very powerful characters, and we don't actually get a sense of what they do. To me, very potent creatures should have very potent things that they do. It may be the case that god forms don't actually exist, and they only kind of exist when a mage calls on them and maybe they don't have a background agenda or downtime in the same way that I sometimes view spirits. The world is full of spirits, but the spirit is only there once you call for the spirit. This is sometimes referred to as paradigm spirits and kind of gets rid of the a bit of spirit problem that I, at least I had with how do you do that. If that's going to be the case, tell me. The authorial voice changes wildly 
throughout this book. I got the sense that as opposed to in previous books where the entire thing is kind of redone to affect the same voice, since we had a bunch of new authors on it, maybe the uh, editors or developers didn't want to get rid of those. And it is very clear that some of the sections have different voices. And while that can be uh, fine when they're next to each other, it can be particularly jarring where uh, a lot of the stuff representing the Pacific Rim and East Asian stuff was very breezy, where there was a much more reverential tone that was used for a lot of the North American writing and maybe something more uh, didactic or academic was used for some of the other things. And just going back and forth between those kind of made me pit entries against each other where I'd be like, oh yeah, I really like this voice or well, this one doesn't actually, this one's kind of fun, but it doesn't tell me what I need need to know. But there was a lot of really cool stuff in here. If there was a section that I could just ask for a blowout on, I thought the Hunter and Static Adept section could have used a little bit more rules, a little bit more guidelines. But the idea that there are people out there that mages have hurt that really have a problem with mages, I thought was super cool. A bunch of the ephemeral entities, I thought the paradox spirits were super fun. I thought the personages were great. I don't know about anyone else. I would love a book of 40 pages of entities in the Umbral Court with some light mechanics and statistics and agendas that they have. It was great to see that. I would have liked a little more information about how the, the god forms of the various types work, but it's a, it's an interesting start. So a lot of fun stuff, a lot of really useful stuff. Is it strictly necessary in your game? Probably not, but it's it's pretty great. The, the merits and flaws feel more balanced than maybe they were in previous editions. I just would have liked uh, a little bit more freshening up, a little bit more uh, sanding around some of the edges, but definitely it's got, it, if you want some weird stuff in your games, it's it certainly got that information in here. I remember in the Q&A at the back of uh, Book of Secrets, it was saying that um, they, they had this concept of taking um, important material for you know, the foundations of running Mage 20, and they would break it up into four books, and one of those was Gods and Monsters. And I actually kind of disagree. Gods and Monsters did not seem like um, an extension of the core rulebook or, um, or overflow from the core rulebook. For, for me, this was the first true supplement of Mage 20. This is a lot of nice additional materials, but you, you could run a game without it and, and really be fine. Uh, the first three books give you what you need to run games, but if you want some more beings, rules, NPCs, etc., this book certainly offers that. I really liked the term god forms, and uh, that, that may have appeared before in Mage books. I may just be forgetting it, but I really like having that as an in-setting term that is a part of mage society. The mages from different factions, but, but friendly factions, uh, get together and talk things over. I think god forms would be a term that they would use because it would say, hey, look, we're hearing reports that people are actually meeting gods, but uh, all the world's religions can't be totally true. That, that, wouldn't, uh, that wouldn't click. So what is going on here? Are there gods or aren't there? And then some mages would say, yeah, the gods are real. They, they just, you know, low key because there's less belief in them. And others would say, no, the gods are not real, but people think they're real. And that gives them a kind of reality. And so people say, well, is there one Loki who appears in different guises or there are a lot of different Lokis? I mean, well, what's the deal here? And so God forms would be a way of discussing it. It's a way of saying they might be gods, but I'm not convinced yet. I, I really like that addition to the in-game culture of mages. I, I definitely don't want to ignore that in my own games. A lot of these entries fully conform to Sleeper Legends. And for me, what I really enjoyed about all of the World of Darkness games, especially in their earlier editions, was 
they were saying, look, let's take something from myth, legend, et cetera, of the real world, and we're going to pull it into the game, but we're going to make, we're going to make some real changes to it. So that, yes, they're vampires, but they don't work the way you expected them to. Yes, they are actually werewolves, but, oh, they, they have all this culture and things they do that no one could have ever predicted. And that makes them really you know, interesting and different, innovative. And so I, I like that kind of approach to that. A lot of the authors of this book said, um, I don't know, they might have erred on the side of caution. I don't want to upset anyone by how I handle this. So I'm going to do it like really, really just traditional how that culture sees this, this being in, in their own mythos. And so I, I would have liked to have seen a little more, more change, a little more um, uh, differences uh, there. Or, or perhaps, as Terry said, they were like this long ago, but the modern world is so crazy and different that it, they, it's affected them in this way. Now they're a little different. Um, I, I like to play with ideas like that. This book gives me, as a storyteller, an interesting challenge because it takes a lot of names from real world legends, religions, et cetera, and it puts them in the book and says, you can use these in your games. It's like, okay, well, I, I appreciate that you're giving me materials to use in my game. However, uh, these days, a lot of people are gaming online uh, with, with a lot of people they don't know very well. And so, um, you know, possibly offending people or, or doing things that are, uh, I guess you could say problematic, is more of a concern than it was, you know, say 20, 30 years ago when it was just me and my friends in my living room. And so um, when you give me these real world, you know, religious and legendary figures to pull into my game, I, I need to make sure that I'm doing it respectfully and, and properly. And yeah, I, I understand that. I'm not going to say, um, do whatever the heck you want and, and step on anything. But it does limit me as a storyteller. I mean, if I pull in Legba, the, the Loa of the Crossroads, uh, right away there's this tension as a storyteller. It's like, well, I, I don't want to do this wrong. And if Legba double crosses the mages, then am I hinting that all Loa are, you know, dishonest beings? I mean, maybe, maybe I shouldn't, shouldn't portray them in that way. Whereas if I take Lord uh, Perdix, the sort of a you know, snake-like machine god who's just invented for this, I can do whatever I want with him, and I'm not going to offend anyone. I can make him smart, dumb. I can make him good, evil. He can be a real bastard. And the mages would go, boy, that Lord Perdix, I'm never going to trust him again. And no one is offended, and no one gets mad at me. So as a storyteller, if I'm going to put my game online and play with people I don't know very well, I've got this real strong... Uh, motivation to go look at some earlier mage books and look at totally invented beings and play with them in my games because then it doesn't matter what I do. You know, who, who am I going to upset? If Lord Perdix is a total, you know, ass, then uh, nobody get, nobody's going to be offended and say you're treading on, uh, you know, people from West Africa. That wraps up my thoughts. Actually, ready to leave. Oh, quote from the book. I have two. One I thought was from the mortal section. And uh, just before we go out, I totally agree with Adam. I am constantly in Mage dealing with the fact that if I just make it up, I can't do it wrong. But Mage is about real world culture and belief. So how do we how do we do that mix? And boy, is it hard. <laughs> so good luck and and great job to all the storytellers out there who are managing that that mix for their game. But yeah, it's it's a tough one. But my quotes one in the section on mortals was never appear to struggle even when you are struggling. Exceptional people never seem to sweat. And I just thought that was a good, uh, uh, simple write-up on the power, uh, the power player character type. The other one was the human body is a perfect argument against intelligent design, with the raw absurdity of male genitalia present, so to speak, the exclamation point in the debate. And I'm like, that was unnecessary, but it was a pretty good sentence. Not gonna lie. You want to dig us out, Adam? <laughs> <laughs> 
think you just did with that one, but no, no, but no, seriously. <laughs> uh, if you have something to say, please contact us at magethepodcast at gmail.com with your questions, comments, or feedback. We read through those and we'd like to know what everyone thinks. Uh, subscribe to Mage the Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and other aggregators, which are always appearing. If you like the show, others might like it too. And if you leave a review for Mage the Podcast, it makes us more visible in other people's certain uh, searches online. We would certainly appreciate that. You can follow us on Twitter at Mage the Podcast. We're also on the web at magethepodcast.com. Uh, we also have our own Discord. We'll put a link in the show notes so that you can come chat with us. You can listen to past episodes on the uh, website of ours and also see the complete show notes that we prepare for you. Might just be something interesting in there for you. Always a few links to follow. And uh, at that, well, I want to uh, pause here and say that we have a, a very deep appreciation to the executive producers who uh, make it so much easier for Terry and I to keep uh, bringing you great mage content. Uh, Terry, can you let us know who our executive producers are? I'd be glad to. I would like to say thank you to Oracle Buck Farmer, Oracle Christopher Phillips, Oracle Jay Widener, Oracle Mikhail, Oracle Regina O'Reilly, as well as Alex Andrews S., Andrew Edelstein, Anon, Birdo, Blaze Hebert, Boo, Boogers to the Sixth, Brad of the Blue, Bryce Perry, Chris B., Dan Scribner, Dan Svensson, David Roy, Dennis Osborne, Derek Semsick, Elliot Osborne, Gargle Noir, George Laura, Guy Conan Stewart, Ia Bull, Jason Kennedy, Jason Vines, Jason W. Bakes, Jeff Brin, Jenna F., John Magnuson, Josh H., Joshua Heath, Carl Halperin, Leslie Weatherstone, Michael Prohl, Michael Creedle, Michael Parker, Morgan Iran, Nabero, Neil Patterson, Nikita Klamanov, Oliver Schindler, Patrick McNamara, Patrick Mulder, Pukaji, Rachel Grace, Ralph Scheinhammer, Ricardo, Richard Bat Brewster, Robart the Robot. Rob H., Ryan Kendi, Samuel Tobin, Stephen Carton, Thrice Great, William Connolly, William Martin, W. Starter, and Zach Rolls. Thank you all of you to your support. I just got some keen microphones that I'm going to be using at Gen Con to do interviews, and that was made possible by our executive producers. Thanks, folks. Yeah, thanks again. If you would like to become an executive producer for Mage the Podcast, it would help us keep producing episodes. You would also become a part of our own council to discuss upcoming projects. The link in the show notes will get you started. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening. And until next time, Truth until paradox, baby. Go change reality. Bye.